Today is Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023, and welcome to episode 246 of Fault Lines as we continue our Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. I'm your host, Morgan Vigna, NSI Senior Fellow, and I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Gary Marcus, talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly of artificial intelligence. Dr. Marcus is a leading voice in artificial intelligence and founder of Robust AI and Geometric AI, acquired by Uber. He is well known for his challenges to contemporary AI and recently testified on oversight of AI for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law. An emeritus professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU, he is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Guitar Zero. His most recent book, Rebooting AI with Ernest Davis, is one of Forbes's seven must-read books in AI. Dr. Marcus, it is a pleasure to have you with us on the pod today. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into the, some of the benefits and dangers of AI, as well as where AI is going, can you tell us a little bit about your background in cognitive science? What is cognitive science? What did you focus your research on? And how does this field lend itself to the realm of AI? Also, how did you get into the AI space in general? That's a lot of questions. So um, <laughs> cognitive science is the study of the human mind. And I always have the phrase by any means necessary in my head because cognitive scientists in principle avail themselves of many different disciplines, psychology, linguistics, philosophy, computer science, and so forth, anthropology, trying to figure out how the mind works. And ever since I've been a child, I've been both interested in AI and in cognitive science. And my niche, I suppose, in AI has always been taking what I learned in my decades of studying the human mind and bringing it over to AI. So ultimately, cognitive science is about natural intelligence, usually humans, but also can be about animal behavior and animal cognition. Um, taking what I've learned there, mostly I studied how children learn, how children acquire language, how they understand the world, and bringing that over to artificial intelligence. So what is natural intelligence tell us about artificial intelligence. That's really been my perspective on AI. And there are lots of things it tells us. For example, um, just right out of the gate, the new form of artificial intelligence that everyone's excited about takes massive amounts of data, <clears throat> much more data than any human ever gets. And so it's a really interesting question, like how a four-year-old child can understand the world and understand language in some ways better than the best AI can do right now when the best AI has to swallow the entire internet. So that tells you that, you know, there's something that we're missing that allows humans to be more efficient. There are many other things that you can learn by comparing humans and machines. And um, I have a podcast called Humans versus Machine. It's partly about that comparison. Um, and that's really what I've thought about for my whole career. I got into AI basically when I was eight years old. I learned how to program on a paper computer. I didn't have access to a real one. It was like a simulation of a computer. Um, and ever since I did that, it was kind of like writing an assembly language on a microprocessor. I got interested in like, how do you make machines, I don't know, play games? How could you write a natural language database? It turns out in the subsequent decades, I won't say how many, because that'll tell you how old I am. You know, some of those problems were really solved. So people now know how to make machines play games pretty well. Wouldn't have been possible in a paper computer, but, you know, we can do it with modern machines. And on the other hand, we still don't have a good natural language database. So if you feed in your data into a large language model and ask questions, it will make stuff up. That's not a very good database. I mean, anybody who made a real database that, you know, made stuff up, they would be like, uh-oh, I've made a mistake here. 
we live in this weird, weird era where people are like, yeah, my AI makes a lot of mistakes, but it's also really fun to play with. So don't bother me. And I mean, I find all of that ridiculous. I think, you know, we'll look back 10 years from now and we'll say that AI didn't work very well. Like why was, why were people so excited and why did they give it a free pass so much? Um, but that's where we are now. And where I am still is trying to understand how it is that AI relates to natural intelligence. So I think it's safe to say um, that you've been at this a while and having been sounding the alarm on where you think AI is headed. Um, and this includes some, some pretty dark places, which we'll, we'll get into a bit. Um, we've, we've seen a recent explosion of generative AIs, such as open AIs, chat GPT, and chat GP, or excuse me, and GPT-4, Google's Bard, among many others. Did you believe that this is where AI was going, was headed, you know, five or even two years ago? Yes and no. So the yes is there are a lot of problems with these systems that I actually foresaw a long time ago. The hallucination problem is an example where these things make stuff up and can't really mm -hmm. keep track of reality. I actually wrote about that in 2001 in a cognitive science book um, called The Algebraic Mind. And I point out why systems that are precursors to the current ones don't do a good job of keeping track of individuals as opposed to kinds. So you might know like, you know, water bottles and then you this water bottle as opposed to these other water bottles. You want to keep track of your own one. You don't want to get germs from somebody else or whatever. Um, so humans have a way of doing this. And I said, these AI systems that are precursors to modern ones don't. And then that leads to, I didn't use the word hallucinations, but I basically made that point. And so there's a sense in which all the stuff we're seeing now is continuous with stuff that we saw 30 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, and so in that sense, none of it's too surprising to me. But it took off in a commercial way that I didn't expect with an asterisk there, which is it's commercial in the sense of like everybody and their brother now knows what ChatGPT is. Everybody's used it some. It's not fully commercial in the sense that it's actually still unclear what the economics of all of this are. So you have investments like you know, um, OpenAI was valued at $29 billion. The revenue isn't really there yet. So they're, they're commercial in the sense that like they're available to the public. They're not necessarily commercial in the sense that they're big economic engines, at least so far. And I think that's partly because of the unreliability. So you have places like JP Morgan and Apple that are like, this stuff's fun to play with, but we don't want you doing it on company time with company data. So it actually remains to be seen what the real commercial impact is. But you know, I don't think any of us predicted two years ago that these things would be so widespread. So many people would have fun playing with them, like it would become a popular phenomenon. You know, two years ago, everybody within the field was aware of these things called large language models. But most of us didn't think they would become this popular. Even a year ago, that was not, you know, totally clear. It's all really since last November that ChatGPT just sudden, suddenly took off to everybody's surprise. Now, I've I've looked at your read a lot of your your publications and read your congressional testimony, and I, I get the sense from you that uh, you think AI is making the internet a more dangerous place. Do you think that? these will be permanent scars or are the effects temporary? And do you think they'll go away once the next big thing in AI is here? Or can we develop tools to counter it, contain it? Uh, what's what, what's on the horizon here? It's a really good question. Um, I guess on the whole, I'm a little bit pessimistic, but I'm not fully pessimistic. So, you know, the next big thing might be a while from now. 
So there might be eventually a class of AI models that can actually evaluate truth. The Achilles heel of current systems is they don't keep track of facts. They're really just statistical models of the world. What words are likely to come next? Which makes them a lot like autocomplete on your phone. You type in a few words, it guesses what might be next. They're basically really good versions of that. And that turns out to be a powerful technique, but it's not a technique that's bound in facts. And so these things are prone to making stuff up. They can be exploited by bad actors. In fact, I wrote a piece on my Substack the other day about a new technique, which automatically basically makes counter tweets. Somebody proposes something, makes a tweet, and it automatically makes a tweet in the opposite direction. This particular one was trained for good, but it's very easy to train it for evil and do the opposite thing. And so we are going to have this massive amount of automatically generated misinformation. Maybe some future technology could actually address that. I think what we will wind up with is kind of like the battles that we see, the arms races that we see in spam. Somebody figures something out, somebody blocks something, somebody finds another way to do it. Same thing with malware, same thing with a lot of kind of cyber crime. Um, and so I think we've entered a world where we're never fully going to get the, the genie back in the bottle. We're always going to have these battles. I think in the short term, we're going to lose most of those battles. The current technology is not really good enough, for example, to detect misinformation. It's great at generating it, but it's lousy at detecting it. So there's an asymmetry there between the ability to create, make an attack, and the ability to identify and make a defense. Ten years from now, maybe the defense will be better. Right now, it's very, very weak. And so I'm extremely concerned about the 2024 election. Um, and there's not just the U.S. election, but actually a number of elections around the world. I think misinformation has already been a part of things for the last eight years or so, but I think it's going to be the effect of um, misinformation is going to be greatly amplified in, in the upcoming elections. So that's one example. There are other examples too, like um, I actually wrote, and I hope I can say this on the air, an essay called The Enchitification of the Internet. So the idea of enchitification, or I guess I could have more politely called it poisoning, I was borrowing a term from Cory Doctorow that seemed right on the money appropriate is we have a whole bunch of mechanisms now by which the quality of the internet is going to go down. Um, one of them is these things make this make stuff up, and then they copy from each other. And I give some examples in this essay on, on my Substack. Um, they copy from each other. And so something that is made up can spread. So that's one example. Another example is people can use large language models to make fake books, for example, or I don't know if fake's the right word, but for example, one author discovered that a whole bunch of knockoffs published under her name, not with her quality, not with her getting any profits were made. Another example that I gave in the article was People are now making travel guides with large language models. They're probably filled with errors. They probably tell you to go to restaurants that don't exist and stuff like that. But somebody might market them for a little less. They might become popular. Um, so that makes the quality of books go down. Um, so there are all kinds of manifestations of a technology that allows you to cheaply make kind of mediocre quality but passable text. So it won't have grammatical errors. It won't look terrible. But it won't really be fact-checked and won't really be accurate. But it'll be cheap. And so, you know, where there, where there is a grift, there's always a grifter. And, and, and mm -hmm. people are going to use this tech to do that. And so through a variety of different reasons. And then I didn't actually mention the article, but another one is people are talking about something called model collapse. And what that means is these large language models need an enormous amount of data. And there may not be enough data. And so they might start getting trained on basically their own exhaust, and that make make quality even worse. Um, and so th there's some consternation in the field. Um, 
I think it's difficult to understand outside the field how greedy for data these systems are. You know, they're basically right now trained on the entire internet. The rumor is that OpenAI also did text-to-speech on all of YouTube or some fraction of YouTube or something like that. I mean, it's just rumors, not confirmed. But the general notion is they've kind of used all the data they have. Using more data makes them better. So GPC-4 is better than 3 because there's more data. Um, but they we're kind of running out of data for them to train on. So we don't really know the consequences, but it wouldn't be surprising if that's an issue in some form fairly soon. Yeah. So with AI becoming ever more present in our daily lives and with people such as yourself bringing up these many risks and moral and ethical implications of AI usage, there have been increasing calls for AI regulation. Um, you yourself have, have called for this. You know, we've seen uh, several different models of, of government regulation, including the EU's rules-based approach with the AI Act and the UK's more sort of pro-innovation approach in its attempt to, to regulate AI. Um, as the United States looks for similar models of regulation, who should we look to for inspiration? The, the EU, the UK, neither of them? Should we pursue our own model? What does that look like to you? I mean, I think the EU has the best, um, with the curious exception of China, actually has fairly good uh, tools. I, I'm not super thrilled with what the UK has done so far. Um, it's also the case that the EU stuff is you know, the best developed, right? They've been working on it for something like four years. Um, in, in fact, some, someone there I won't name said, you know, four years ago, everybody was running around saying, why are you working on this at all? Like, we don't need this. You're like in fantasy land. And now everyone's like, hurry up and finish it. You're going to need another two years to finish this thing. What's going on? We need it yesterday. Um, and so they've been working on it for a while. I think that the, there was some nice forethought there. Um, even they aren't done. There's a lot of like terms that have to be cashed out. They have this, I forget the word, I think it's trialogue process where um, three different entities have to agree. So it's worse even than just getting the House and Senate, which is hard enough over here. Um, and so, you know, it's by no means done, but I think a lot of it is well thought. Through The big problem was they didn't think about language models at all, large language models at all, when they made their first draft. And so they, they had a problem that I think is a general problem, which is the speed at which you know big groups of government leaders write laws doesn't approach the speed at which the technology is evolving. So they have now kind of put a Band-Aid on for this particular issue. Um, and I think, you know, they're in reasonably good shape right now. But I think it does point out the need to have international and national bodies, um, like agencies that can move more quickly than governments are ever going to be able to do. Um, you know, when I spoke to the Senate, um, I, I won't use their words, but my own, they don't want to be in the business of making different regulations for GPT-5 versus GPT-4. That's not what they do, right? They make enduring institutions that should last 200 years. And so they could make an enduring agency for artificial intelligence and then give that agency the room to maneuver and be agile and deal with technology as it changes. So we don't want, you know, the Senate to have to parse the fine details um, of this model as opposed to that model. You know, I think it's a really good point. I was in a, an event with uh, Senator Ernst um, not too long ago, and she was specifically asked about congressional action on AI. And she, she admits, she's like, look, AI terrifies me. It terrifies me because we cannot compete with uh, the, the speed of sort of AI's uh, advances. Um, 
And I think um, many, many in Congress are sort of at a loss as to sort of how they can keep up um, with, with this emerging technology. So I, I do think that's a really interesting point. Um, getting to your, your question or getting to your response on, um, on international institutions, I'm wondering to what extent um, I, I, I get the need for an international body to potentially regulate AI, but I'm also curious as to what you think about you know, an international treaty. I know you, you had potentially referenced this before in some of your work, and I'm, I'm curious to know, um, you know, the United States takes international treaties quite seriously. Other countries, <laughs> primarily our adversaries, do not. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think um, an international treaty or um, international law, how useful that would be um, in the AI space? I mean, it's an open question, of course. I think that there are some things we could probably get international agreement around and probably some we can't. So we have some international agreements around arms, around cybersecurity and so forth. Often these things need to be renegotiated. You know, unfortunately, some of the arms things are up for renegotiation at an awkward time relative to Russia. So, I mean, there's always complications on these things. Um, but I don't think that means we shouldn't try. And I don't think it means that we can't get any kind of deal. Um, an article just came out yesterday about building AI that's conscious. And I would take that as an example of something we might want a treaty around. Do we really want that? My view is if we built, if we built conscious AI, which is by no means clear, um, whether it can actually be done. But if we did, it's not at all clear that we would have any way of controlling it. We might decide that we don't want to have conscious AI because it poses too many risks. Like the Skynet scenario like feels like science fiction to me. But if we built conscious AI, I don't know if we could rule that out. Um, and so I'm just giving this as a hypothetical example, I suppose. But we could imagine we might want an international treaty that said, don't build this stuff. And maybe we should have monitoring and work together because we don't want an AI that, you know, runs way ahead of any government and maybe even any tech company and can't be controlled. And so I think one of the reasons to have a treaty is there are scenarios where we just lose control of things and we don't want to do that. And we might need international collaboration to do that. There are other reasons um, besides that to have international cooperation. One is just an environmental issue, which is Every large language model is very expensive to train. It uses a lot of water, a lot of electricity, and so forth. If we have 190-some countries, each with their own rules, which is actually where we're headed, a kind of Byzantine mess, then every every single company in this space is going to have to train 193 models using a ton of energy, using a ton of electricity, um, or gigawatts of electricity. Um, this is not good. And so from an environmental perspective, having some shared laws so we don't use massive amounts of resources and you see all the fires and stuff we're having right now from climate change, like we don't want to exacerbate that problem. So that's a place, another place, a totally different kind of place where we might want some international treaties. And, and, yeah, and not just treaties, but like um, kind of common practice so that, so that we can do things efficiently. Mm -hmm. Sure. So we, we've talked a lot about the dangers and the risks of, of AI, but clearly the, the, there must be a flip side to this, right? AI was not developed out of malign intent. There, there are some benefits here. Where do you see the most benefits of AI? Is it in optimization, assistance, or, or something else entirely? In the future. <laughs> this is my short answer to that. So I, honestly, I think the biggest uh, uses of AI so far that are good are search engines, not necessarily chat-based search, which doesn't work very well, but classic search engines. 
um, I think are enormously helpful in getting information distributed around the world. Um, and routing systems for GPS and stuff like that are actually enormously helpful. I think in the future, AI can really contribute to scientific discovery. Um, you know, think about the fact that, for example, we haven't made any real progress on Alzheimer's in over 50 years. I haven't made that much uh, progress on treating depression. You know, I saw a number once. I think it's one in five people is affected by mental illness at some point of one sort or another. Um, most mental illnesses, we haven't figured out the science to do them. We haven't figured out how the brain works. You know, we're, we have lots of data, but we don't really have a theory there. There are problems where I think AI could really help us. So, you know, the brain is 80 billion neurons. No human being's ever going to understand that. We're going to have to have machines help us. And new forms of AI that maybe haven't even been invented yet might be incredibly helpful for all kinds of things about medicine, science. Material science would be another example. Everybody was excited, um, including me, although with some skepticism about LK99 uh, a few weeks ago, all hoping that, you know, this room temperature superconductor had been discovered. I don't know if that's even possible, but I sure wish that an AI could do a more systematic search maybe than people can maybe find some way of doing it. something like that. You know, if there were a real version of that, of room temperature superconductors, it would totally change the world for the better. And so, you know, I could see AI playing a role there too. So I genuinely think that AI could really help us. I'll give you one more example is AI might help with loneliness. We're, we're you know, entering demographic inversions where we have way more elderly people than young people. Realistically, if we could build robots to help um, the elderly, that would be a good thing. Isn't that considered a breakdown in our society if, you know, robots I mean, it's not a first choice, but if you, if you look at the demographics – like the alternative is people are just going to be lonely. Like um, we just are, are entering a world where there's not going to be enough people to take care of and interact with the elderly because you know, just the, the nature of the demographics, the declining birth rate and so forth. I don't think that's everywhere in the world, but it's it's a large part of the, the developed world is, is entering that. And it's a problem. You could imagine um, better quality robots than we know about now helping with loneliness and more generally helping elderly stay at home longer before they have to go to a retirement community. And so, you know, that's another way in which I think AI could eventually help. Great. Well, is it fair to say that you consider yourself currently an AI pessimist, but in the future, an AI optimist? I would, I would say I'm an AI realist and that we're in a dark moment, but I hope that we can get to a brighter moment. All right, Dr. Marcus, that's a wrap. Thank you for coming on today's episode of our Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. Thanks to Tatum Clifton, Devin Burney, and the NSI staff for their help in producing today's episode. Fault Lines is also now on YouTube, so be sure to check out our channel for a video of today's episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and remember to share with all of your friends. 